Hey, Murder With My Husband listeners, we're here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. There's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually actually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas. Garrett and I sometimes get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found a custom pickleball set for my pickleballer who, as you know, is obsessed with it. Now, it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleball, gift mode has you covered need to find the perfect gift don't panic try gift mode on etsy now shout out to claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with some samples you guys allergies suck and it really sucks when my nose is all stuffed up i can't do anything i can't even enjoy dinner because i can't taste my food i can't work out because i feel so tired and i'm out of it and just forget getting ahead on recording the show because i sound so stuffy but luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies we can live claritin clear with claritin d designed for serious allergy sufferers claritin d has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've honestly been using Claritin D for my allergies forever and it's always been my go-to. I know when spring hits, I won't have to worry about my eyes watering like crazy and my nose running like a faucet. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast. This is Murder With My Husband. I'm Peyton Moreland. And I'm Garrett Moreland. And he's the husband. And I'm the husband. Okay, I think I'm having like out-of-body experiences every time I say it now. Like it's just autopilot? Maybe it's just time to change the intro. No. How's everyone feel? Did I just give everyone a panic attack? Never do that. Was this like the consistency they needed? Reminder, if you want ad-free content, no ads, and just to hear my voice and Peyton's wonderful voice, then you can subscribe on Apple or on Patreon, and you'll get ad-free and bonus-free content. And that's for all of Oh No Media, so you get access to Binged and Rising Crime as well. For those on Apple, there was some ads recently on a couple of episodes that is fixed now. We're sorry about that. Um, sometimes there are some glitches, but we are good to go. For this baby. <laughs> What's that from again? Uh, it's a meme, right? Or a, it's a TikTok? TikTok? Okay, I'm yeah. just a baby. I'm just a baby, yeah. I'm just a baby. Okay, before we get into Garrett's 10 seconds, I'd like to say something I was thinking about last night when I was having anxiety and couldn't sleep. Mm. I think I would like to start a petition to have my own 10 seconds. Okay. I think my voice is valuable, and I think that <laughs> I have things I could say. <laughs> I'll tell you what, babe, we can start, we can give you a 10 seconds when I'm the one telling stories or when I'm the one That'll telling episodes. It'll never happen. I guess there's the answer to your question then, huh? I just, I have stuff I want to talk about that's not I, murder sometimes. I agree. Well, then maybe we, need to, maybe we need to do another podcast and just, you know, riff the raft with each other. 
Okay, whatever. Going to Garrett's 10 seconds. Not sure if anyone would listen to a Rift Draft podcast with Peyton and I, but you never know. All right, my wonderful, extraordinary, perfect, very exciting 10 seconds. How are you going to say wife? Oh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> is that I'm going to get a haircut after we record this episode. Oh, yeah. My hair's not very long, but, you know, just going to go clean it up a little bit. Also... Peyton and I may or may not be going to a Taylor Swift concert next week. Yep. So we will. Up- Already next week. I know that crazy. Yeah. So we will update everyone on that. Also would like to say, sometimes I wonder if the world is trying to kill me. And I know that was kind of abrupt. But what I mean by that is every time, I swear, every time we are driving, something crazy happens to me. Am I right? Well, not something crazy. It's just you almost die. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty insane. I just mean like a car cuts you off or like. And I swear it's not my fault. Like people just merge right into me. People try to hit me. It just happens to me. And maybe maybe at some point I need to internalize a little bit. Maybe it is my fault. But I swear every time we're driving, I'm always on the defensive. Well, you did get run off the road. It's, yeah. Anyways, luckily I'm a good driver. We're still alive. Everything's okay. But I don't know. Maybe the CIA, maybe someone's behind it. Why would they want you gone? Maybe someone doesn't like the podcast. Wait, are we just going to like not talk about the UFO thing? Like they literally said they found aliens. Okay. Well, we can't make this intro too long. So we'll have to talk about it on another episode. I'm telling you, we need to start a riffraff podcast. Like that. I just feel like that's right up our alley, but also like, maybe we'll do you do, believe it? Maybe we'll do a bonus episode for everybody just on all the alien stuff. I don't know if I got that much to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll think about it. Maybe we'll do an episode on that. Okay. Our case sources are 48 hours, CNN.com, Texas Monthly, McAllen Chamber of Commerce, CBS News, the Sydney Morning Herald, Courthouse News Service. My San Antonio, The Washington Post, My New York City Genealogy, BishopAccountability.org, and Phoenix News Times. So for many people in America, going to church is a major cornerstone of their lives. It offers them a sense of community, a feeling of belonging, assuredness, and most of all, a feeling of safety. This was especially true in small towns in the South, particularly back in the 1950s and 60s. But what happens when your safe place, your church, is infiltrated by a predator? Even worse, what happens when the hierarchy of that church works to protect the predator, Mm. leading to a cover-up that allows a case to run cold for decades? Today's story begins in the small town of McAllen, Texas, on the southernmost tip of the state, right on the border of Mexico. Nowadays, it's a busier area as it's the third largest border crossing in Texas. But back in the 1960s, when our story takes place, McAllen was still a small town where the white population and the growing Hispanic population didn't always mix well. For example, the town's one public swimming pool was off limits to the Hispanic people living in McAllen, who were instead forced to spend the scorching summers dipping in the town's irrigation canals. This was the world Irene Garza knew and grew up in. It was also the world she'd come to love deeply. 
Irene herself was part of this growing Hispanic population in McAllen. But Irene also broke a lot of barriers, particularly at McAllen High School. There, she became the school's first Hispanic twirler and head drum majorette. When Irene was 15, her parents' dry cleaning business had seen so much success that they were actually able to move to a more affluent neighborhood in McAllen, one north of the train tracks where other Hispanic doctors, lawyers, and businessmen lived with their families. Mm. Irene also became the first woman in her family to attend college, where her popularity continued to skyrocket. At Pan American College, Irene was crowned homecoming queen. Then in 1958, the 24-year-old won the Miss All-South Texas Sweetheart Contest, which was practically unheard of at the time for a Mexican-American woman. After she graduated from school, Irene continued to live with her parents in their new neighborhood in McAllen, Texas. But she decided to return to her old neighborhood below the tracks for work. She taught second grade at the elementary school there and even used her first paycheck to help buy her students school supplies, clothes, and books. Plus, she'd been nominated as the secretary of the Parent Teachers Association, which was about to be a huge challenge for Irene. She wrote to a friend in early April 1960 saying, quote, This might not sound like much, but to me it means a great deal. It means I'm overcoming my terrible shyness and becoming sure of myself. So while Irene's been doing all of these pageants and campaigning for homecoming queen, it seems she does have some insecurities she's been hiding, like any young woman her age who's still trying to find herself. But in that same letter, Irene also spoke about her old fear of death and told her friend she thought she might be cured. She said she'd been going to communion and mass daily, and it was giving her immense courage and faith. Irene wrote she was happier than she'd ever been before. So two weeks after Irene penned that letter, it's Easter weekend. On the Holy Saturday, April 16th, 1960, the church is packed with people from all over McAllen looking to cleanse their souls through confession. At around 6.30 p.m. that night, Irene asks if she can borrow the family car to go do the same. She tells her mother she won't be long and makes the 12-block drive over to the Sacred Heart Church in McAllen. Now, Irene is not someone people miss. She's strikingly beautiful, elegant even, and catches the eye of nearly everyone as soon as she walks into the church that night. There are rumors that some of the young men in town go to church just to spot a glimpse of Irene. I mean, she's this beauty pageant. She's beautiful. So you know she's something special. Some take notice that night of her making the sign of the cross as she enters the church. Then she takes some time to herself, kneeling and praying in the fifth row of pews. Next, she gets in line for confession, pulling a white veil down over her face. She even lets one parishioner cut in front of her because they're running late for the next event. While many people noticed Irene inside the church, no one reports seeing Irene exit or go out to the parking lot after her confession. Now it's starting to get late and back home, Irene's parents wonder why her quick trip to church is taking her so long. At first, they imagine maybe she'd stayed for the Easter vigil mass that's happening later that evening. But when Irene doesn't return home by 3 a.m., her parents know something was wrong and they immediately contact the McAllen Police Department. The next morning, Easter Sunday, police find Irene's car. It's parked down the street from the church. But for the rest of the day, there's still no sign of Irene. Still, her family is holding out hope. They know Irene has been talking to a few potential suitors and figure 
maybe, while it's unlike her, she just ran off with one of them for a day or two. But on Monday, April 18th, new clues change that theory. On the side of an empty stretch of road in McAllen, a passerby spots a small beige shoe. It's scuffed up and part of the hill seems to be missing. It doesn't take long for Irene's parents to confirm it was the same one Irene was wearing when she left the house that Saturday night. Okay. Just a few hundred yards away, police locate another sign that Irene might be in great danger. It's hard too because you think, oh, I mean, my daughter's going to church, should be safe, nothing bad's going to happen, yada, 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 and then now she's gone. No one sees her leave the church. Then she goes missing and now her shoe is found. And then they find her black patent leather purse with her driver's license still inside. Mm, Okay. And just a little further north, and just a north, <laughs> and just a little farther north, a piece of white lace crumpled and tossed in the brush, similar to the veil Irene was last spotted in at church. Only there's no Irene. So for the next several days, members of the local police spread out on horseback, combing the area for any sign of the young woman. They scanned the 32-block radius surrounding the Sacred Heart Church where Irene was last seen. They even go knocking door-to-door around the area. By day three, they've put together one of the most extensive manhunts in the history of the Rio Grande Valley area, complete with 70 members of the Hidalgo County Sheriff's Office, 65 National Guardsmen, two Border Patrol airplanes, and a team of divers combing the canals. Along the way, there are some alarming and strange leads. For example, one woman calls the Garza home claiming to be Irene. She says she's been kidnapped and brought to a hotel in another town what over. What the freak? Why would someone do that? And this is the second case we've seen that kind of happening. Yeah, where the except the other case, it really probably was, was, was them. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it's them this time, but it doesn't sound like it is. Well, detectives quickly do realize the call is a hoax. Then there's a man who tells a local waitress that he killed Irene and threatens to kill her next. After investigators look into the man, they find he's just overly intoxicated and not someone worth considering as an actual suspect. So they have a few leads that amount to absolutely nothing. That is until Thursday, April 21st. At 7.40 a.m., the McAllen PD receive a call saying a woman's body had been spotted in the Second Street Canal, which is several miles away from where the other evidence, like Irene's shoe and purse, were discovered. By the time police arrived, an entire crowd had gathered to watch them remove the body from the water. The woman is still fully clothed, aside from her shoes and her underwear, and her blouse appears to be unbuttoned. Her face is horribly bruised, including two black eyes. Still, it's clear enough to make out this is the body of Irene Garza. And the autopsy reveals even more about what may have happened to her in those missing hours. By the state of her decomposition, the pathologist believes she'd been dead for a little less than four days before she was discovered. Okay. And since she's been missing for almost six days, this implied she might have been held captive for a day or two before she was killed. Where? They also determined her cause of death was suffocation and that she'd been beaten by a hard object just before. There's also evidence that she was sexually assaulted at some point during her captivity. But the problem is, the autopsy is really the only clue they have to go off of. 
Well, that and a partial men's shoe print that was left on the canal bank four blocks south of where Irene's body was discovered. Mm, and four so, blocks. I mean, that could be could be a little kid running around, right? Right. It could well, be anybody. It's hardly a smoking gun. Yeah. But police think maybe the culprit dropped her body off at the location of the footprint and she floated downstream. Ah, uh, okay. However, any other evidence that might have been left behind, like blood or hair, would have been washed away by the time they pulled her from the water. But one thing is 100% clear. Detectives have a homicide on their hands. There's a killer loose in the McAllen area. And the Hidalgo County Sheriff promises they are going to leave no stone unturned. Which, oh, is so hard because there's a killer loose. But the last place she was seen was at church. Yeah. So that's that's pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. Could possibly be someone at the church. When we started podcasting, an online store was honestly the furthest thing from our minds. But now we're selling Murder With My Husband merch. And it's so easy because we use Shopify. And we really do. We use Shopify to sell our merch. I've been using Shopify for years. So it is absolutely amazing. Easy to use. So intuitive. I love it. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And it's great because they grow with you. So whether you're just launching your shop or you've just hit a million orders they are there every step of the way shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36 percent better compared to other leading commerce platforms we've actually tried a couple other platforms before we started using shopify to sell our merch and shopify is just the best um i've been using it for years like i've said and I just love having control over it and being able to do what I want. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com husband. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com husband now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com husband. All right, you guys, Audible is your one-stop app for all things audio entertainment, from bestsellers and the latest releases to celebrity memoirs and gripping mysteries. Audible's library is brimming with countless genres to love and new discoveries to make. Dive into an unparalleled selection of audiobooks and explore exclusive Audible originals brought to life by top celebrities, renowned experts, and fresh voices. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog in including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Plus, you can enjoy unlimited access to a growing selection of audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts such as Murder With My Husband. Honestly, I love Audible because I will get into a story while I'm cleaning or driving. Sometimes I get so hooked listening to a story, I just end up finding new places to clean or just end up sitting in my car, which drives Garrett nuts, but I'm out there sitting there. New members can explore Audible free for 30 days. Also this March through May, the Audible sweep you into a realm of intrigue and suspense with their mystery and thriller collection, featuring exclusive new thrillers from their best-selling authors. Their selection is designed to captivate and surprise ensuring your heart rate remains as elevated as your imagination. New members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash MWMH or text MWMH to 500-500. That's audible.com slash MWMH or text MWMH to 500-500. Now, this is practically unheard of nowadays, but the mayor of McAllen seems so committing to finding Irene's killer that he offers the police a blank check. 
for oh, the wow. investigation. This way they have, quote, whatever money necessary to help solve the crime. Even the locals lend resources to solve Irene's crime. Small businesses around town offer reward money to anyone who might have any valuable information. And over the next few weeks, detectives interview about 500 people from Irene's family and friends to anyone who saw her at church that final evening. They even map out the entire confession line, who was standing in front of who and so forth. So they're basically putting together her last night at church. On top of that, they interrogate a variety of sex offenders in the area spanning as far as 700 miles west to El Paso, Texas. So needless to say, the investigation seems incredibly thorough at the beginning, but rumors about the culprit are spreading like wildfire throughout the town. Some wonder if Irene's murderer might have been a heartbroken suitor, seeing as many men around town were very interested in her. Others suspect that it was this prominent McAllen citizen who had died just a few days after Irene's disappearance of a heart attack. But the one theory many people are thinking, but no one is saying out in the open, is what if Irene's killer was a holy man? Yep. So several days after Irene's body is found, investigators drain the canal along 2nd Street looking for any further clues. Lying only a few feet away from where they discovered the man's shoe print, they find a light green Codaslide viewer with a long cord. This is basically one of those old-fashioned projector systems that you could put two-by-two two photos uh, yeah. in and display bigger on a wall for people to see your family vacation or wedding photos or whatever. Got it. It's so hard because I think nowadays nothing surprises us. Right. right? Like anybody can kill someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it didn't used to be like that. Especially in the 60s. Yeah, it was like, oh, well, they are a priest or they go to church or they are a cop or they are, you right, know, right. someone in a respectable, whatever you want to consider respectable position. You're like, oh, they would never do that. Uh-huh. And nowadays it's like nothing surprises no. us. It could it could be anybody. We looked at, we looked at them first, could be, you know. They could be the president of the United States. Like it just said, yeah. you know, nothing surprises us these days. So police believe the murderer might have used the cord from this machine to bind Irene's hands or to keep her body submerged. So this becomes a critical clue. Mm. Problem is, they don't have any idea who this thing belongs to. So they ask the public for their help in finding the owner. And shockingly, one man comes forward saying, yeah, that's mine. He's a 27-year-old priest named John Fight. Now, Father Fight was new to the McAllen area. He had just finished his seminary school in San Antonio, Texas, and he was only supposed to be in McAllen for a year of pastor training. Many of the locals liked him because he gave his sermons in Spanish and did it well. But others said the dark-haired priest with horn-rimmed glasses was also kind of a bit aloof. Even worse, he almost seemed unsure about his commitment to his faith. When one parishioner asked him why he wanted to become a priest, Fight said, I just wanted to give it a try. Ironically mm-hmm. enough, Father Fight also happened to be one of the priests hearing confessions at the Sacred Heart the night Irene disappeared. It seems interesting that he came forward. It doesn't make me very suspicious of him because he came forward. I agree. And several parishioners who waited in his line that evening claimed the queue moved slowly and that Fight seemed to disappear from the church several times that night. Okay. Well, in May 1960, police call Father Fight in for questioning, and his story changes a few times. At first, he says Irene approached him in the rectory that evening, which is like the private housing section of the church meant only for the clergy. 
He claims there Irene wanted to discuss a question of conscience. After this, he sent her to the sanctuary to make her confession, which is the more appropriate place for these matters. But later, he changes his story. He says he did hear Irene's confession in the rectory, which would have been considered a really inappropriate thing for him to do. And that's why he kept it to himself originally. Still, he claims after he heard her confession, Irene left around 7.15 or 7.20 p.m. Then Fight returned to the sanctuary of the church and continued hearing other parishioners' confessions for the next several hours with a few cigarette breaks. At some time during the confessions, Father Fight said he broke his glasses while he was playing around with them. Which, now he broke his glasses the same night she disappeared. It's just... Yeah, I know. It's suspicious. I was watching something yesterday and it was like, is there really coincidences? Yeah. You know, it's true. Like how many things can actually be a coincidence? So at about 10 p.m., he drove to where he was staying to grab another pair of glasses about five miles away in San Juan at the pastoral house. But when he got there, he found that he had forgotten his keys and the doors were locked. So he had to scale the building to the second floor balcony to let himself in. It's now he's a rock climber. And during this process, he says he scraped the back of his hands. That's why there's scrapes on them. Getting creative. Now, this detail is actually later corroborated by another priest at the Sacred Heart, Father O'Brien. He claims that when the clergymen gathered after their midnight mass, he noticed Father Fight had these strange markings on the back of his hands. But if he got them from climbing a brick wall, then why were there scrapes on the back of his hands and not the palms? Well, police also clock this as suspicious, but they let Fight continue with his account. He says on Easter Sunday, he gave two morning masses and an afternoon mass. But later in the day, he was approached by Irene's parents who heard he was one of the last people to see her. They asked whether he might have said something to Irene that could have upset her, and he told them there wasn't anything he could think of. He also tells police that this conversation with her parents was so upsetting that he drove aimlessly around town after and couldn't return immediately back to the pastoral house. Now, the police are obviously considering fight as a potential suspect at this point, but they are also keeping this pretty hush-hush. Because in a town like McAllen, you don't just talk about the church or priests in this way, especially in the 60s. It's blasphemy to infer that a man of God would have done something as sinful and unholy as murdering one of his parishioners. So until they have more information, the fact that fight is a suspect is not made public. However, it's around this time they learn of a similar attack, one that happened just a few weeks before Irene Garza went missing. So back on March 23rd, 1960, a woman named Maria America Guerra visited another Sacred Heart church just 12 miles away in Edinburgh, Texas. When she entered the church, she noticed a young priest with dark hair and horn-rimmed glasses sitting in one of the back pews all by himself. Maria was at the altar praying when a man snuck up behind her, grabbed her, and tried to smother her with a rag. Wow. She bit down on the man's fingers, drawing blood, which ultimately helped her escape. She bolted out of the church, screaming and yelling for help. She never got a look at the man's face, but she did see he was wearing black pants, just like a clergyman. Okay. Maria felt certain the person who attacked her was the same priest who'd been sitting in the back pew when she arrived, the father in the horn-rimmed glasses. After police learn about Maria's attack, they call Father Fight back in for questioning. I mean, 
things are just not looking good for him. It's interesting because, and why did he say that cord was his? Right. Like, why would you do that? They get him to admit that he was in fact at the Sacred Heart in Edinburgh on March 23rd for a meeting with another priest. So now he's admitting that he was at the same okay. Sacred Heart where the, the the girl before was attacked. Yep. However, he claims he left before the time of the attack and was back at his house in San Juan by that point. When his fellow priests are questioned, they admit they saw the bite mark on his finger right after wow. the attack. But Fight says he got it stuck in a mimograph machine just a few days before oh, March 23rd. Okay, now I'm done with these coincidences. This was despite the fact that the rest of the clergymen said they didn't see the injury until the night of the attack. His fellow priests also insist Fight wasn't back at the house before the time of the attack, like mm -hmm. he had claimed. So they don't hold up his alibi. Got it. But ultimately, Father Fight denies having anything to do with Maria or Irene's attacks. Still, things don't go exactly Fight's way. In August 1960, he's indicted for assault with attempted rape wow. against Maria. Though it takes another two years for John Fight to have his day in court. And inevitably... Fight finds himself facing a hung jury. Instead of going on to a second trial, he pleads no contest, which means he's not admitting he's guilty, but he accepts whatever the conviction is. Okay. This helped him reduce his charges, and Fight is only slapped with a $500 fine for wow. that attempted attack. It doesn't surprise me, though. One, because of his position. Two, it was just an attempt. It was, which is so messed up because would he have killed her? Right. I just. The attempts are so hard to me um, with the justice system because I they mean, just got unlucky. Yeah. Like he probably would have killed her. Yeah. It's insane. Keep in mind, this is just for Maria's case, the attempted attack. She yep. got away. She bit him and got away. Uh -huh. There's still no movement, nor are police getting any closer to charging fight in Irene's death, though they think he's responsible. Yeah. And over time, Irene's case stalls out. Detectives move on to other cases and newspapers on to other stories. Many begin to wonder, was there some sort of backdoor deal that's been made between the church and the state? Like, how have they not charged him? Mm -hmm. Or are detectives just afraid to harshly prosecute a man of God? Either way, it seems like fight is getting off easy, and he kind of is. The Catholic Church ships fight off to a monastery in Iowa, then Missouri, as part of a rehabilitation program. Rehabilitation? Now, you killed someone, so let's just move you around a little bit. Yeah. He's later moved to a treatment center for troubled priests in New Mexico. For context, this is the same treatment center where the infamous Father James Porter was sent after he abused as many as 100 children Holy. during his time with the church. Holy crap. However, in 1972, Fight leaves the priesthood altogether. He moves to Phoenix, Arizona, gets married, and has three children. For the next 30 years, John Fight gets to live an ordinary, quiet life as an insurance salesman. Okay. But in April 2002, the San Antonio Police Department receives a call that changes everything. The caller claims to be a former priest who's now living in Oklahoma City, and they have information about a murder that occurred in the Texas area in the 1960s. The man says in 1963, he was living at a monastery in Missouri where he counseled a young priest from San Antonio. The priest confessed to this man that he had attacked and killed a woman over Easter weekend. 
Now, the timing of this call is interesting because 2002 was the same year the Boston Globe exposed several Roman Catholic priests for sexually abusing minors. It became a huge national scandal that proved there were cover-ups happening in Catholic churches across the country and inevitably led to 249 criminal cases. I think it's interesting that they would confess that probably because of their beliefs. But at the same time, it's like you killed someone. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? So the San Antonio police are cautious Mm -hmm. about this phone call because maybe this person just has something against the Catholic church and thinks now's a time to come out because so many people are, Mm -hmm. or maybe this person has been harboring this secret for some time. And with the current climate, they feel, okay, it's time I can finally come forward. What they don't realize is that over in the Texas Rangers new cold case unit, one detective named Rudy Jaramillo has also just reopened Irene Garza's case. Problem is, Jaramillo doesn't have a lot to work with since there wasn't any DNA collected during the initial investigation. And many of the detectives who originally investigated the case are now either deceased or retired. Still, Jaramillo's suspicions are firmly locked on the original suspect, John Fight, But he is also looking to answer some of the other lingering questions, like where was Irene killed? And how long before her body was dumped in that canal? For months, Jaramillo has no idea that some of those answers are hiding in a file owned by the San Antonio Police Department. Then in November 2002, word finally reaches him. The San Antonio PD is working on the same case. They need to now compare notes. Jaramillo meets with the San Antonio detective named George Sadler. And they find that while that former priest from Oklahoma doesn't know the name of the victim, he did know the name of the man he'd counseled. It was John Fight. So Jaramillo and his team begin building a new case against Fight. And their first stop is tracking down the Oklahoma priest who called in, a man named Del Tacony, who is now their star witness. Tacony makes the drive to San Antonio to meet with Jaramillo to tell him the entire story. And it goes something like this. In the summer of 1963, a superior of his at the Our Lady of Assumption Abbey in Ava, Missouri, told him a new troubled priest was joining their ranks. Packany began counseling John Fight, and over the next six months, Fight opened up to him slowly about the crimes he'd committed. Fight told Tacony that a young woman had come to him on Easter weekend to give her confession. Instead of hearing her confession in the booth, however, Fight convinced her to come to the rectory instead. After hearing her confession there, he moved Irene to the rectory basement because he knew it had thick walls and no one would hear her scream from oh down there. Oh my gosh. There, he restrained her, removed her blouse, and fondled her. Then he took a break to return to the church to hear more confessions to try to establish an alibi, leaving Irene in the basement, tied up, and just hurt. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So, like, we all have stuff that stresses us out, right? Whether it's big or small, it can really get to us if we keep it all inside. And therapy is a safe space to just let it all out and figure out how to deal with the stuff that's weighing us down. And I am such a huge advocate for therapy. It truly has changed my life for the better. I could go on and on. I feel like I have the tools now to handle panic attacks or just major stressors in life and also a safe space to say whatever 
I need to say to an unbiased party. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com husband today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot husband. We're jumping into an ad right now, and I, no joke, I've had this question I think about it all the time because I hate getting sick. Do you ever wonder why some people just don't get sick? One of the reasons you can help yourself from getting sick is Armra Colostrum. Okay, obviously I had no idea that colostrum is the first nutrition we receive in life and is an exclusive source of all the essential nutrients we need in order to thrive. So what's amazing is Armra colostrum is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 functional nutrients to strengthen your immune barriers, your body's inside suit of armor, and the first line of defense against harmful particles from the environment that can trigger inflammation and actually make Make you sick. I'm not saying that it 100% works for everybody because obviously you never know, but all I'm saying is I haven't been sick since I started taking it. Well, and the science behind it is so cool. Armra colostrum strengthens all four layers of your gut wall where 80% of your immune cells are housed. And it's a rich exclusive source of antibodies that optimize your immune defense during cold and flu season. Plus in clinical trials, bovine colostrum was found to be at least three times more effective than the flu vaccine at preventing the flu. We've worked out a special offer for our audience receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash husband or enter husband to get 15% off your first order. Again, that's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash husband. Later that evening, after all of the parishioners had left, he moved Irene to the pastoral house where he was staying just a few miles away. Then Fites told Takani on Easter Sunday he placed her in a bathtub and put a bag over her head before leaving for church to give mass. He claimed to hear Irene crying out as he left, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. By the time Fight returned from church that afternoon, Irene was dead. Later that night, on Easter Sunday, Fight placed Irene's body in his car and moved her to the canals where he left her. Takani said that when Fight described the crime to him, he showed no remorse, sorrow, or grief oh over gosh. the act. That is insane. Also, it was planned. And also, like, he's literally leaving a girl in a basement tied up with her blouse open to wow. go hear yeah. confessions. Which is so, like, the most hypocritical thing I've yes. ever heard of. And then leaving her in a bathtub, walking out, hearing her say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, for her to die while he goes and gives mass. Also, who knows how many other people he's done this to. Right. Maybe not killed them, but sexually assaulted. So when Takani asked how he had gotten away with his crime, Fight admitted that higher-ups in the church had protected him to safeguard their own reputations. No way. For decades, Takani felt a religious obligation to keep the priest's confession a secret, considering that other higher-ups had as well. But in 2001, Takani said things changed for him. He was approached by a writer who wanted to pen a book about his life. And Tackney realized that this information shouldn't be exposed through his memoir. It needed to be told to the police. Wow. Dale Tackney wasn't the only valuable witness Hamario tracked down, though. Would he get in trouble because he's kept it a secret so long? Or I assume he said, look, I'll tell you everything if we come to a deal that 
I'm sure. I mean, he could probably get charged with obstructing of justice, getting, you know, involved with a case, but I don't think he did. So the detective locates another priest who'd worked with fight at the Sacred Heart Church the weekend Irene went missing. His name was Father O'Brien. He was the same priest who had noticed the suspicious scratch marks on Fight's hands, the ones he claimed he got by scaling the walls. Well, it turns out that Father O'Brien was so suspicious of Fight that weekend that he and another priest actually searched the rectory for Irene once they heard she was missing. Only they found no sign of her. How did he get out of there with not one other person seeing him? It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that seems impossible. But like Del Tacony, O'Brien didn't go to the cops because of this unspoken protection that he was seemingly granted to anyone inside the church. O'Brien did, however, say that back in 1960, he'd confronted Fight to ask him what had happened to Irene. And Fight confessed to Father O'Brien he had, in fact, killed Irene. Wow. And that's when they sent Fight off to the monastery. That's so insane. That they is knew. insane. That's not okay. Right? That is not okay. So with O'Brien's account confirming a lot of what Tacney had said, Hamario thinks he's got a strong case on his hands. I think it's even pretty crazy as well that instead of re- like releasing him completely, they sent him somewhere to continue to practice. Yes. Like, yeah. Like, oh, we can quote unquote fix you, whatever yes. you want to call it. Yes. Like, did you just... He killed one of the S- parishioners. He just S-A'd someone and killed them. After attacking another girl. It's like the worst thing you can do. So at the very least, they feel like they have enough to arrest John Fight, who is now 70 years old, mind you. Only the Hidalgo County District Attorney, a man named Rene Guerra, thinks the case doesn't stand a chance in court. What? Yes. Guerra doubts Tacony's account, saying it's possible he made the whole thing up since Tacony himself was excommunicated from the church for getting married before he'd formally left the priesthood. Oh, so we'll excommunicate someone for getting married, but... Not for murder. If you kill someone, nah, you're good. Guerra also claims that O'Brien's case won't be admissible in court because the conversations he had with Fight during his priesthood was privileged. Okay, and I want to clarify here, Garrett and I aren't dissing the Catholic Church no, by not any at, means. Not We're at dissing all. these specific people Correct. who covered up a crime yes. and made these choices. The truth is, it seems like not much has changed in Hidalgo County over the last four decades because they're still kind of like, ah, eh, that was privileged information. Okay. We're not going to use it against him. People like Wera are still hesitant to prosecute a man of God, especially without any physical evidence and especially with a case this old. Inevitably, Guerra says he won't be presenting the case to the grand jury, which means Irene Garza's case goes cold again. At least until Guerra leaves his post as DA and is replaced by a man named Rick Rodriguez in 2015. That year, Rodriguez takes his seat as the new county DA. One of his first orders of business is to finally get justice for the Garza family. But time hasn't made that easy. Father O'Brien, one of their last remaining witnesses, died back in 2005 just three years after the case had been reopened originally. And Del Tacney is now 87 years old. John Fight is also still alive at 83 years old, living in the Scottsdale, Arizona area. He's now a grandfather. They've lived their life. Yes. Or he's lived his life. Still, this doesn't stop Rodriguez from moving forward with the case. He brings it before a grand jury, and this time, Fight is indicted for his crimes. In February 2016, he's finally arrested in Arizona and extradited back to Texas for a trial. 
In March, the 83-year-old fight enters the courtroom using a walker and pleads not guilty to the murder of Irene Garza. By this point, fight is also riddled with stage three kidney and bladder cancer. Wow. So there's questions as to whether he'll even go on to see the verdict. Aside from Del Tacney, one of the witnesses called to the stand is Irene's childhood friend, Anna Marie Hollingsworth. She recalls a conversation she had with Irene just before she disappeared that Easter weekend. Allegedly, Irene had told Anna Marie that she didn't like going to confession anymore because fight always pulled her out of the booth saying the space wasn't good enough for her. Apparently, he had taken her to the rectory a few times before that day to hear her confession, which was something that made Irene uncomfortable. While Irene was confused about Fight's insistence on the matter, she always went, though, because it was his instruction. After all, this was a priest. She had no reason to feel unsafe or threatened by a man of God. During the trial, the prosecution also offers up evidence that proves a deal was struck between law enforcement, local officials, and the church to keep fights crime a secret. That's that's not okay. The evidence comes in the form of a letter from October 1960, one that was sent between clergy officials. It expresses concerns, particularly over John F. Kennedy's presidential election that year. It basically says if the church is found to be tied up in a murder, it could jeopardize Kennedy, a Catholic man, and his chances of becoming president. Wow, this which is, is deep. I just thought so ironic that at the beginning you said, yeah, it could even oh, be our CIA, own president. Yeah. And now this is literally part of the reason they covered Uh it up. So in order to protect Kennedy, as well as another local Catholic sheriff that was also up for re-election that year, the DA made a deal. If Fight pled guilty to assaulting Maria America Guerra, they would look the other way when it came to Irene Garza's death, which is exactly what happened. The church agreed and as part of it sent Fight away to monastery for rehabilitation. That letter seemed to be all the evidence the jury needed because in December 2017, they found John Fight, now 85, guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Fight was eligible for parole in 2024, but in February 2020, he was found unresponsive in his cell. Mm. John Fight's cause of death was said to be cardiac arrest. The most heartbreaking part is Irene Garza went to church on that holy Saturday with her whole life still ahead of her. Her journey was cut off too soon by a man she should have been able to trust in a place she should have felt safe. Instead, Irene Garza and the entire community of McAllen were betrayed, but her story was not in vain. Her case has helped to expose a dark corner of the Catholic Church, one that is often riddled in cover-ups, corruption, and its own personal agenda. Thanks to Irene, organizations like bishopsaccountability.org are continuing to fight for justice for those that have been wronged by the Catholic clergy abuse crisis. And that is the case of Irene Garza. It's sad that you think you're sending, you know, you think your kids are going to somewhere safe and they aren't. Whether, you know, it's it's a church, whether it's a daycare, school, you know, all these places where kids are supposed to be safe. Yeah. And they just... It's part of the reason we see people pretend to be cops and pull people over. And then that's how they attack them or pretend to be doctors. I mean, there's just should be this level of teachers getting in trouble. You know, it's just there's this level of authority and trust that's so abused. And I also find it interesting that he got married, had kids and like lived a life without doing. I mean, who knows if he was sexually assaulting anyone. But you know what I'm saying? Mm hmm. You just I feel like went on. Yeah, it just went on. Like, which I tend to not believe. 
Mm-hmm. I think there was probably other stuff going on. Even if it wasn't like full killing somebody yes. yeah or sexual assault he he was most likely making women feel uncomfortable yeah, it's not a good person it's a common thing we see yeah, yeah. and because he was he was making irene feel uncomfortable before he even murdered her she obviously confided in a friend saying i'm really uncomfortable when i go in for confession because he always pulls me out yeah so it's just heartbreaking and it's also completely unfair that he got to go on live his life and she get didn't. married have kids have grandchildren and she did yeah agreed All right, you guys, that is our case for this week, and we will see you next time with another one. I love it. And I hate it. Goodbye.